Welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. It's your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and a medical oncologist with interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. And today's podcast covers some of the important data that have been presented at the ESMO 2023 meeting that took place in October 2023 in the beautiful city of Madrid, Spain. Lots of things happening in lung cancer. And uh, despite thousands of abstracts have been presented and submitted and reviewed, we are going to focus only on clinically relevant, potentially practice-changing data. And for this, I have Dr. Haas Burgai from Fox Chase and Dr. Tony Callis from Spain, who are going to really talk to us about the important abstracts that are potentially practice-changing. And before I air the podcast, you know it. Don't forget to subscribe to the show, rate it, write a brief review, and let me know what you think about other topics. Direct message me on uh, on Twitter at Chadi Navhan. And if you want to read the book, come on, folks. It's Toxic Exposure, the true story behind the Monsanto trials and the search for justice written by yours truly. Here we go, ESMO 2023 in review. First of all, welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered, my friend. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's very kind of you. And I'm not sure I'm world-renowned, but I appreciate the comment. Oh, no, no, you are. So, I mean, like I said, you're the Haas. How did that happen? What got you into thoracic oncology anyway? And who are you? <laughs> I don't know how, I don't know how far you want to go. So my real name is Hossein, Hossein Borgai. Um, when I was in medical school, I had a cardiology professor who thought on rounds, saying Hossein took too long. He said, from this <laughs> point on, you're Haas. And the name stuck, and they called me Haas. It's funny because uh, Marty Edelman, who's the department chair here, he hadn't met me before. And you know, at one of the meetings, somebody told him, oh, go talk to Haas. He knows about whatever question he had. And he said he was looking for somebody who was like six foot two with a hat and boots on, you know, thinking Haas. And then he saw me. Uh, so it was a surprise to him. So that's how the name Haas started. I was born in Iran. I immigrated to the U.S. when I was about 17 years old. I spent about a year or so in Germany. Hey, Tony. Got so you speak you speak German and Persian? I do. My German has gotten a little bit rusty just because I haven't practiced as much. You know how it is. With languages, you really do have to practice and listen and work on it. Um, but yeah, I was fluent in German and you know, a couple of other languages. Because honestly, when I was in Europe, I wasn't sure I was going to be able to come to the U.S. I didn't know if I was going to get a visa, that kind of stuff. So I studied a couple of different languages just trying to figure out where I was going to end up. But, and, and I see you picked very important languages that are really going to get you somewhere, the Persian language and the German language. Look, things were <laughs> different, okay? <laughs> All I have to say. Well, welcome, uh, Haas. I really appreciate And then we also have another first-timer, Tony. Uh, we were just talking about quick intros. This is your first time on Healthcare Unfiltered, but you come to us from a different time zone. So I want to I appreciate the fact that um, this is night uh, where you are. Just quick intro. And um, how many languages do you speak? So far, Haas speaks three. His English is a little bit broken, but we can manage. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, thank you very much uh, for this invitation. For me, it's a great honor to participate. It's true. This is my very first time. I'm very excited about that. And yes, it's very it's late here. My my kids are having dinner, and it's time for them to go to bed. Tomorrow they have to go to school, but really, really happy to be here. So I speak 
Spanish, basically. And then I tried to speak in English, a little bit of French. And um, well, uh, I like a little bit uh, some languages and I'm able to understand a little bit of Italian, Portuguese. Nice. Not, uh, not Dutch, not German. I mean, um, yeah. Yeah. I'm done. I, I, I do speak a couple of Persian words, actually. I have, have friends here in Chicago, where I am, that have some uh, Persian restaurants really, really good. So I know Shabakher, Khuda Hafez, you know, do, you know, Haas, I can, I can navigate a few things. Absolutely, you can. I have no doubt about it. And Tony, great to see you as always. Thank so you, Thank you. We Thank were you. all at ESMO uh, in Madrid um, a couple of months ago, and we're taping this on December 5th, 2023. This is slated to air actually in January, so it will be 2024, just for context for listeners and viewers. And I want to do this like rapid fire type of thing with two world-renowned thoracic oncologists, because as I was telling Haas before we went on the air, when I looked at ESMO, um, there's a lot of data, thousands of abstracts. But the two diseases that struck me that there's so much about were bladder cancer and lung cancer. I did an episode on bladder cancer and we're doing this on thoracic. I felt there's a lot of information that might be related to how we take care of people and patients. And the way I thought we'll structure this, we'll talk about early stage disease and then metastatic disease and locally advanced. So Haas, is there anything that struck you at ESMO 2023 about early stage disease or Tony? Whoever wants to take this first. Oh, I would say only five abstracts or so, you know. Some. So the early stage disease, obviously, again, everybody knows, is, has taken um, a whole new dimension with the introduction of immunotherapy in the neoadjuvant and now perioperatively, so neoadjuvant and adjuvant setting. So what we saw at um, Ward Long uh, was a long way that results of the um, uh, Checkmate 77T um, study, uh, which was uh, presented by Dr. Cascone. And this is, again, another one of the randomized perioperative studies where uh, patients with early stage lung cancer, mostly stage two threes, um, before they go to surgery, received uh, chemotherapy and immunotherapy in relation to uh, surgery. And then um, the experimental arm continued with the nivolumab in this case uh, for a period of about one year. And the experiment, the, the control arm was basically best supportive care. So these have become very popular. So what is the advantage and disadvantage as far as I'm concerned? We'll see what Tony thinks. You know, when we had the 816 study, it was just three cycles of chemo IO, you go to surgery. And if a patient had a complete pathologic response, that was great. We had retrospective data, other data from the old days, suggesting that patient was going to do well. But we were all kind of nervous and sort of left as to what to do with patients with less than a path CR. And then come all of these perioperative studies like aging, like uh, 671 and now 770, because you have the option of continuing another year of immunotherapy in the adjuvant setting. Now, the, the, there are advantages and disadvantages from my point of view. The major disadvantage is that we're going to be over-treating a whole bunch of patients who don't need immunotherapy for a whole year, who could potentially suffer side effects. I mean, these drugs have adverse events associated with it, and you know, their survival would not have been impacted by a year of immunotherapy. On the other hand, I am sure there are patients who would continue to benefit from a year of immunotherapy, and hopefully the survivals would be even better. We need time. We need um, sort of uh, more of a follow-up to uh, from all of these studies. Again, aging, Kino 671, 770T, to try to figure out what happens to a patient population with path CR or less than a path CR with a year of immunotherapy. But 
I kind of feel that this approach gives the physicians and the clinicians an option of continuing the immunotherapy if somebody doesn't have as good of a response, hoping that um, we can get there. The, the major crux of all of this is that uh, these studies and the treatment of this patient population is extremely multidisciplinary. You need a multidisciplinary team to look at um, this ca- these cases, the tumors, the, the histologies, the PDL1, all the biomarkers have to be available. And then you have to have surgeons who are willing to work through chemoimmunotherapy and, and all of that. And the major risk is that something happens in between the patient doesn't get potentially curative treatment of surgery. But luckily, I don't think those numbers have been very high, although again, more clarity regarding exactly why roughly 20% of patients never go to surgery in these studies is important. I don't know if I, what, what Tony, Tony thinks. I think um, the the data that's been presented for the Checkmate 77G um, and other perioperative trials, not only in ESMO, but specifically in ESMO, I think it's transform, are transforming the way we are treating patients with the stage 2, 3B disease. Usually that, that was a very very easy decision to make because if the patient was candidate for surgery, the only discussion was, well, we can give the chemo pre or post-operative, but the net benefit will be low. I mean, we wouldn't, we weren't um, transforming the lives of these patients. We know that most of these patients will lapse upon follow-up. So we were just waiting for most of them to relapse at some point. But now, we are probably curing patients because those who achieve a PCR, we're pretty sure that they are not going to relapse in the next uh, years. So more than 90% of patients who achieve a PCR in a locally advanced disease are potentially cured. And this has been also um, presented in, uh, in ESMO with the um, keynote C79, C79, where so for fun. a... 671, that for the for the very first time, there's been data on overall survival. That was a um, primary endpoint of the trial, not only EFS, but also OS. That means that this approach is really transforming the survival. And now we are discussing this patient in a multidisciplinary setting, and the, the more and more patients are getting chemo IO preoperative. However, there will be small differences because at the end of the day, the evil is in the details. And at least in the European region, in MR region, the neoadjuvant nivolumab in combination with chemo is limited to those patients with pdl one positive expression, which doesn't make a lot of sense at all. We have patients with PDL1 negative um, that are that achieve uh, PCR and haven't relapsed. So this is a really transformative uh, um, treatment. So, so ju- just to just to simplify things. So in early stage disease, yes. is the consensus today in 2023-2024 that all comers should undergo neoadjuvant therapy, or are there patients you would take to surgery right away? Tony and then Haas. Well, this is debatable. I don't think all patients has to has to be um, discussed for the adjuvant chemo IO. Um, in in our case, uh, at least a stage three disease that are potentially resectable, uh, we tend to put these patients on chemo IO 
operatively three or four cycles and then surgery, but not all patients with the stage 1B or 2 disease are discussing for chemo IO because sometimes these patients are operated before they are discussed because this is a nodule that cannot be achieved for biopsy by either bronchoscopy or a CT scan, but it's clearly a malignant uh, tumor and they get the, the surgery right away because there's no way to get the, the tissue before the surgery. So this patient is already uh, operated, the, the, right. the, the tumor is gone. And then we'll discuss if this, that patient is adjuvant chemo or IO, but there are certainly some patients, specific, specifically stage 1B and 2, that probably all of them don't go to chemo IO and there will be some patients that we can debate if chemo IO is the, is the best approach. But for a stage three, a stage three A or stage three B potentially resectable, this uh, treatment option is a, is a very new option that has to be discussed in every multidisciplinary tumor board. Positive, I, don't agree. Know. Um, I agree. I think stage three, there's clear evidence from all of these studies that they can benefit from neoadjuvant and then an adjuvant approach. So um, in our tumor board discussion, most of the time we have uniform agreement that for a stage three patient that deemed to be surgically resectable upfront as a good candidate. I think what I'd like to sort of say is that I think at least in the US, this is a very different institution by institution, meaning there are places where everybody gets neoadjuvant regardless of the stage, and there are places where you discuss and you decide. So I agree with Tony that stage one, maybe some of these patients don't really need neoadjuvant. There's not a lot of data. Stage two is debatable because there is a level of controversy. If you look at the hazard ratios from most of these studies, you can't say for sure stage two is uniformly benefiting. I think that's the reason why we need to have this multidisciplinary discussion regarding who really is a candidate and who's not. Now, let's say you decide to give neoadjuvant therapy, then I want to move to locally advanced disease. Um, you decide to do neoadjuvant therapy. Can you get by Haas with just immunotherapy alone? Do I need to add chemotherapy? Are there studies to show I can go by just with IO neoadjuvantly without adding chemo? I think what we saw at ESMO was Mark Awad's presentation where you can use a combination of IO-IO because uh, that was one arm of the, I think, Checkmate 816. That was not, uh, it's not the arm that has um, had the um, sort of the statistical hypothesis built around it. But uh, what Dr. Ovad presented was this exploratory analysis population, about 110 or so patients who got epineva without any chemotherapy. And again, the outcomes were there was uh, in terms of event-free survival in favor of epinevo versus chemo alone, but you know again the caveats of the PDL1 selection, no molecular markers, all of that has to be in place. I'm not aware of single agent IO studies. Um, uh, I'm sure there are some institutions that have done it. I think the best single agent IO study that sort of started this whole field is Patrick Ford's uh, nivolumab study that basically was like one or two doses of nevo, and then everybody that the 20 patients published in New England Journal of Medicine. But since then, everything has been chemo IO. I think some of that has to do with trial design because some people consider chemotherapy alone as a appropriate control for neoadjuvant. So I think that's why uh, IO was built on it. Um, there are many thoracic oncologists who don't believe chemo is the only standard for, for, for neoadjuvant. But nonetheless, I think the study sort of developed along those lines. 
I don't know if Tony knows of any single agent IO besides Patrick Ford's study. No, no. You, you I, know, Tony, I, I, Tony, I, I, I was, I, I, go ahead. I was going to tell you, Tony, that uh, in, in, the mind, in my mind, I always think of neoadjuvant therapy as a way to convert unresectable disease to resectable disease. But listening to you and Haas, there's actually, a, it's more than that. There's actually an, there's an immunological effect. Like it's, this is not just about surgery. In other words, you could still have resectable disease, but you still elect for neoadjuvant therapy because you're doing something to tumor. Right. But this is a very uh, borderline indication. I don't think that most of the patients that were included in neoadjuvant trials were no, non-potential resectable. They were resectable from, or the decision was, well, surgery is possible after uh, uh, chemo, but the decision was from after neoadjuvant treatment. So I think that many people still think that we can convert uh, unresectable disease in resectable disease based on response, but we are facing facing new challenges like the staging, tumor staging with PET, PET CT scan or mediastinoscopy or EVAS after neoadjuvant chemo IO is not really well established. We have seen patients that don't downstage clinically, but at the pathological layer, level are under a complete response. So it's not very easy to discriminate what patients are on PCR before surgery because the tumor, the, the image in the CT scan is still there. Right. So if the decision was a right pneumonectomy and the patient still have a borderline pulmonary function and the reason to do chemo is to avoid pneumonectomy and convert into lobectomy, but still there are gaps in the CT scan. The chemo is not the right approach. I think for those patients with really unresectable disease. We have a very good good alternative that is definitive chemo radiation followed followed by one year of adjuvant uh, dubalumab. Uh, that is yeah. very consistent, very long-term overall uh, survival results. So there's a very good option for these patients. We don't have uh, any trial uh, exploring to convert an unresectable stage 3 disease into resectable stage 3 disease. So we should avoid this kind of approaches, but all, of course all these cases have to be discussed into multidisciplinary tumor boards. Haas, before you go into subsequent data, because you guys need to tell me what's out there, there's one thing that just came to mind, and it's hard for me not to ask. As we, you know, as you, a lot of you now, you sequence these tumors and try to understand the genetic uh, profile of these tumors. Um, if you have, let's say, an ALK-positive tumor, EGFR-positive tumor, uh, are there studies that are looking to do neoadjuvant therapy with an ALK inhibitor, with an EGFR inhibitor, and then you really don't need to do even chemo IO, maybe Haas and then Tony, you can address that. And then I want to move to additional data at ESMO. Now, the short answer is that, yes, there are studies looking at neoadjuvant targeted therapy. Um, and there are examples of small studies uh, using TKI uh, already published, sort of suggesting that this uh, this this approach could be beneficial, but uh, there was one at, um, that was presented at ASCO where the pathologic complete responses were at um, Massimartin, if I'm not mistaken, wasn't really all that good. So I think it's an area of um, sort of active, active investigation. We have to look into that data. But um, you're right, there is, there is a need to develop these sorts of strategies in patients with um, 
targeted therapies. And under that category, you've touched upon the two that are more common, probably EGFR and ALK. I think it's going to be very difficult to do a large randomized study in patients with RET alterations or MED alterations or anything like that. But perhaps in the EGFR setting or ALK setting, this would be, you know, doing a larger study would be a more feasible option. Any comments, Tony, on that? Right, we already have very good data in the adjuvant setting. So uh, the important message here is that is that we have to um, molecular profile these tumors before surgery to avoid chemo IO in these patients because probably target therapy is the best approach. And we have two trials, the ADORA trial with three years of chimertinib after surgery and the ALINA trial uh, with two years alectinib versus chemo that improved dramatically the DFS also avoiding, avoiding brain recurrence in, in these patients who that is a very, very common feature. So at least we have this very strong phase three trials that support the use of adjuvant TKIs. And of course, there are neoadjuvant trials trying to to um, answer the question whether or not it's better to to administer these TKA agents, but I don't think honestly that we will get the same results in terms of EFS that we have seen with uh, limited chemo IO approach in patients without tumor um, without um, driver alterations, basically because. Is, there is a sense that uh, the time of treatment is important for this patient. So probably three years of osimertinib is good, but uh, nobody knows if five years is better than three years. And probably with an uh, alectinib, two years alectinib is, is happening the same. So a short treatment versus a, a long treatment may be a differential thing for these patients. Pass. Next, what do you have for us? Uh, additional data from ESMO. I don't know where you want to go. I think we did okay on the early stage disease. I don't yeah. want to go metastatic or locally advanced. Your call. Well, I think there's one other study that's kind of important for us to talk about in the metastatic setting, um, and that's um, the TL01. This is datapotamab, daroxtacan versus docetaxel. Um, it's a long way that study uh Datapotamab deroxtacan or DATO-DXD is uh, the antibody drug conjugate targeting trope 2. Uh, there's been a lot of interest in um, antibody drug conjugates, and the results of this uh, tropian long one was presented at ESMO. So this is a randomized phase 3 um, uh, ADC versus docetaxel. Again, a lot of good preliminary data for all of this. I think we all agree that this was done correctly. This was a, an area and still is an area of unmet need, meaning the patients with chemo, immunotherapy, after disease progression, unfortunately, our options are very limited. We're back to cytotoxic chemotherapy with limited clinical efficacy and a lot of toxicity. So when the ADCs became popular, there was hope that we can replace them. And there are a number of these ADCs that are in phase three and are entering phase three. So it's going to be a very crowded area. But as I said, the tropion long one was one of the first to go into this space. So everybody was waiting for this result. So inclusion, exclusion, very standard. Everybody had had chemoimmunotherapy, one to two lines of prior therapy, no other actionable mutation, simple randomization, you know, ADC versus chemo, standard dose, just kind of a clean study. This is what you want to see. Ask one simple question. You get one simple answer. You sort of move on. And of course, it does open the door for additional information and, and additional research. 
the ESMO presentation included PFS only. I think OS might be a little bit premature. And in the presentation, there's a clear advantage to the ADC over chemo when you look at PFS. The hazard ratio is 0.75. Numerically, there was a you know a 4.5 months improvement for uh, in, in PFS uh, for the ADC versus around 3.6 or so with chemo docetaxel, which is really um, expected. Responses were higher in the ADC compared to DOSI. Um, but you know the p-value was significant. So I think PFS is good and subgroup analysis was presented. I think because of the, probably, this is my idea, that because of the hype around ADCs, we were all hoping for a much better PFS and a much larger differential in terms of response and all of that. And we didn't really get that. Plus, the ADCs have proven to have toxicities that are legitimate and we have to pay attention to them, even though many of them could be grade one, two, but uh, to quote a patient advocate that we love and heard a lot, Joel Friedman, you know, chronic grade two toxicities can be life-altering and affects your quality of life, really. So I think some of my colleagues and my discussions with them have been a little bit less impressed, but it is a positive study for PFS the drug works a little bit better than docetaxel. The other complaint in the U.S. side of the border, not in Europe, is that many physicians here consider doceram as the control and not doce alone, because you know the the study is approved here. I mean, the doceram is approved in the U.S. I'm not sure how I feel about that, honestly, because again, in a global study, you don't have RAM everywhere. Uh, but that has been a criticism in the U.S. that doceram was not an uh, as a, an option. So I think at this one we're going to wait and see what happens with the overall survival and sort of decide where this particular ADC sits. But more information is going to come. Tony, any comments on this trial? Sure, I think uh, the trial was positive in terms of the um, primary endpoint. That the exploratory analysis that was very surprising for us was that the benefit was primarily driven by patients with non-squamous histology. We didn't expect that, and we don't know the real reason for that. Is uh, because squamous are expressing less levels of drop two, or is there any other biological explanation for that, or is just by, by chance? We don't really know, and we are starting to learn many things from this agent. So. A small difference with among these dif these dif different uh, ADCs may be important. This reminds me somehow to the history of pemetrexid that was primarily driven to non-small cell lung cancer, and then we learned that non-squamous histology was the the primarily. Uh, patients that benefit from pemetrexid and not squamous. This is a very similar story for that here. And we don't know how it's going to impact uh, anti-regulatory agencies and how the physicians is, are going to adopt that. And I agree with Haas because um, specifically for non-squamous histology, there are physicians who support the use of docetaxel plus an anti-BGF. We have here in Europe, Ninteranib, that already have positive overall survival results in non-squamous histology, not only in PFS, but also in OS. So docetaxel may be insufficient or not all that we can provide to the patient. But of course, the benefit is still small when, when adding an intendanib and we also add in toxicity. So 
ideally you would like to see a randomized trial in this histology versus the Texas Plus uh, anti-angiogenic. But we are waiting for other ADCs in the same setting with similar mechanisms of action, very similar trial designs. And we'll see in the next months what is going on. I think it will be interesting to positioning all these agents in the second line setting that is clearly an unmet need for us in the clinical oncology. It's a great summary. And also it's great to see a new class of drugs really making its way into lung cancer. Um, okay, next. Well, and then we'll go to targeted therapies. That's so here, cool. Tony and I have to split. There were, at least in my view, three um, sort of interesting and possibly key studies. And they all have the, now I have learned, these are all butterfly names. There's a Papillon, there's Mariposa, and Mariposa 2. Mariposa 2 is a, they couldn't come up with something more creative. It had to be Mariposa. I mean, I don't know. But <laughs> so... <laughs> I'm going to hear from my friends there. So I thought the Papillon study uh, could potentially be uh, very, very helpful and um, potentially practice changing. And I'll give my take and Tony can say. So Papillon was basically a study conducted in patients with exon 20 insertion mutation. Definitely a rare mutation, but one that we see because we do so much molecular testing now. And this was a, a randomized study because the standard of care at the time of initial diagnosis for exon 20 insertion is usually chemotherapy. IO is not thought to be very effective here. So chemo has been the standard. In Papillon, um, the bispecific antibody amimatinib was added to chemotherapy uh, to, the, to the experimental arm. So amimatinib chemo versus standard chemotherapy. Again, a well-conducted study good rationale behind that, good toxicity profile for amimantinib. We know a lot about it because it's already been used in the refractory setting. And then you do a randomized study, standard drugs used in both uh, good numbers, but 150 or so patients um, per group. And you sort of see what happens. So um, what basically happened is that the primary endpoint of the study, which was progression-free survival by sort of blind and independent review was significantly better in the amimatinib plus chemo, but it has a ratio like almost like 0.3, like 0.3 and a half, something like that. Uh, and and the median survival was also better, double digit around 11 and a half months in the in the experimental arm. So this is a patient population um, for whom we really don't have a lot of options. So besides chemo, because this other oral agent, I'm not sure when I talk about it, that used to be used in the second, third line space, sort of went off the market because confirmatory studies were basically negative. So we were left with not having a lot of options. So now being able to improve outcomes in the front line is really important, but we are left with a little bit of a hole in the second, third line space. And I realized that. But given the fact that majority of our patients in the time at the time of initial diagnosis are candidates for more aggressive therapy and tolerate more uh, toxicities and all that, I think this is a good positive finding and one that can be practiced changing if it gets uh, regulatory approval. The toxicities were, again, very much as expected. Infusion reactions happen a lot in the first cycle with amimatinib. There's rash. There are issues like that. But no major um, surprises with the addition of chemo. So 
I thought this was a good study and one that, again, if I have access to right now, I can use it in my clinic. Thoughts, Tony? Right, I agree. It's a new standard of care for the very few patients that we see in the clinic because these are very how, rare. What's the percent? Help the listeners. Like, how often do you see that the Exxon Twenty? Like, uh, what's the percent? Well, it's one of the most common and common mutations. Um, uncommon mutations are around fifteen percent of EGFR mutations, and overall, Exxon Twenty mutations are around four to five percent of okay. all carcinoma with EGFR mutations. So. Not a very huge population, but very important in terms of, sure. of, of finding it. And it's very important, these mutations are not easy to find because most of commercial PCR hotspot tests don't detect most of these mutations. They, they detect some of these mutations, but not all of these mutations. And their current recommendation by, by most of the guidelines is to perform NGS, to be able to detect all of these mutations. So now that we have um, a new treatment that we can offer for these patients, it's very important to detect all these candidates as soon as possible. And I think that in the, in the first line setting, Amivantam performed very well, better than expected. And again, I think they surpasses all the oral TKAs that went from very long way to get the point in the first line setting, but Amivantam did before. And I think we have to learn again about the side effects is a new agents new agents the BS specific are new agents and we have to accommodate our daycare visits to these infusional treatments infusional reactions side effects but it's a matter of um, experience once you have the um, learning cure you know how to deal with these agents so at least for this population it's clearly to me a new standard of care so Papillon did a very good job that's great Okay, the next butterfly or something, mariposa, <laughs> whatever that is. <laughs> Tony, you want to take mariposa? Right, right. This is one of the most exciting trials in in the in the in the year because, um, again, um, and chemo-free option um, beat um, osimertinib. That is currently the standard of care, and there is seems like a plateau. Um, in the treatment of common mutations with osimertinib, we have to add in something on top of osimertinib to improve the outcomes, and amibantamab did it. This is a large randomized phase three clinical trial. They include common mutation, that is the exon 19 deletion and the exon 21 uh, mutation, puntual mutation, patients with good performance status. And importantly here, patients were screened with a brain MRI. And that's very important because this detect an asymptomatic brain metastasis. And also during the, you can calculate well the intracranial response rate at the intracranial PFS, what is of utmost importance in these patients. The trial had uh, three arms. Patients were randomized to three arms. One was osimertinib, the standard of care and the controller arm. And the experimental arm was amivantamab, that is a B-specific anti-EFR and MET antibody, plus lathertinib, that is a new uh, third-generation EFR TKI. To control the effect of um, lathertinib, a third arm was included in the trial, that is lathertinib monotherapy, to compare the performance in terms of PFS and side effects uh, against osimertinib. Um, the primary point was PFS, and basically 
the trial performed well with a median PFS of almost two years, 24 months with the combination of lacertinib um, amibantamab, which is very remarkable. Osimertinib usually is around 18 months of PFS, and this trial was a little bit shorter, 16 point something, but the hazard ratio was good, uh, hazard ratio of uh, 0.70. So the trial was positive, and also it was positive in patients with and without brain metastasis. So this agent has um, brain activity, which is very important in, in this population. The data on overall survival is still immature. And, and we don't have, I mean, the, preliminar, the preliminar, preliminary figure seems encouraging, but we cannot say nothing at all at, at this point. The question with this combination was the toxicity profile. I think this is um, something to discuss because we are, we are adding efficacy, but also toxicity of uh, importance, the combination of ATKI plus amivantamab increased the rate of thrombotic events. And mandatory uh, prophylactic coagulation uh, is needed for this patient. So you have to discuss this with the patient. Then you have the infusional uh, reaction that usually happens in the first one or two infusions, then uh, when the patient has no um, IRR later on, and skin toxicity and diarrhea and edema, that is a met-specific toxicity uh, together with hypoalbuminemia. So something to discuss, this will be long-term toxicity, probably create one or two, but again, mm -hmm. uh, this is to the, that this can be burdensome for the patients. The discontinuation rate was high in the trial. At some point, patients, um, uh, two-thirds of the patients basically had to stop uh, one of the two agents because of toxicity compared to 10%, around 10% in the, in the control arm. But overall, it's a, um, a new treatment option that met its primary endpoint. And now we have another opportunity to treat patients in combination with a chemo-free uh, intervention for these patients. Haas, any additional comments to what Tony thought? Because there's another Mariposa, you said. There's like a Mariposa too. So yeah. maybe any comments on what Tony said, and then we move to the next trial. No, not much else to add. I think he covered pretty much. Mariposa 2 was using the same combination, amimatinib, chemo, um, with or without the lazertinib that we just talked about, but uh, versus chemotherapy in patients that had actually had evidence of progression on osimertinib. So it's slightly different. So second line, basically, after osimertinib. Again, that's an area where we don't really know what to do with patients. Some, some of us do chemotherapy. Some people do the Empire 150 with the quadruple carbopaclitaxel BEV type of a thing. So an area of unmet need, and there are studies that, that want to look at this. Mariposa okay. 2 then took amimantinib. Um, Lazertinib chemotherapy was one arm. Chemo was the control arm, and the other experimental arm was simply amimatinib plus chemotherapy. Again, everybody had prior osimertinib. They, they then sort of um, revised and amended the study. It ended up being a two-arm study with amimatinib, lazertinib, chemo versus amichemo. Um, again, the study clearly shows that either of the two experimental arms are much better than chemotherapy. So you sort of already have... Yeah. some idea, some sense as to what you want to do. 
the hazard ratios were very close to each other. Again, pretty impressive, 0.48, 0.44, so to speak, when it comes to the progression-free survival kit, because that was the primary endpoint. So you have a pick of choosing the, the, the three drug right now, in my view, or the two drug. I don't know how Tony feels about this, but I'm a little bit more worried about the toxicity with lazertinib added to the amatinib and chemotherapy. Um, I think if I can have very similar responses, very similar PFS with amimatinib chemo, do I really need to bring the lazertinib into this? And again, additional cost, additional potential toxicity. So for me, if this becomes an option, I think I would prefer just the amimatinib chemo. Now, granted, this was just our first look at this. We haven't seen the actual manuscript with more details, just the presentation. So there's a lot of information that's still missing. But um, based on the presentation, again, I would say um, madnet chemotherapy is an option for some of our patients post-progression on osimertinib. Completely agree. I think that amibantamab uh, has a lot of sense in this indication. Uh, it's an agnostic approach. You don't need to know the, what's the mechanism of acquired resistance to osimertinib. That avoids you to revoliopsy these patients in their tissue or liquid. So it theoretically works irrespectively of the mechanism of resistance, which is a nice approach for the general practitioner. And, and I also agree, I think amibantamab on top of chemo is probably the way to go. Um, we don't need probably lathertinib here. It's increasing the thrombotic events in this, in, this, in, this, in this setting. You are adding toxicity, but you are gaining something here. PFS is important. Yeah. We don't have data yeah. and overall survival, but I think it's something meaningful. And in this indication, uh, it has a lot of sense. So uh, we've got five minutes or so to go over whatever rapid fire you guys have. Um, uh, so like briefly in the last five, six minutes, what else should we cover? Uh, Tony? Well, I think the jewel of the crown is uh, in target therapy, so percatinib. Uh, so, um, so percatinib is a um, uh, next generation red inhibitor with uh, brain activity. Um, it's already proved in previously treated patients with red fusion non-small cell lung cancer. And during ESMO, they present the results of the randomized phase three clinical trial in the first line setting of cell percatinib versus chemo or chemo IO, chemo plus pembrolizumab, in patients with red fusion uh, non-small cell lung cancer. The trial design was very simple. Patients with uh, performance status of two or uh, zero or Two, uh, with metastatic non-small cell lung cancer and red, uh, red positive by NGS or by sequencing methods were randomized to salpercatinib, an oral pill, versus chemo or chemo-IO upon um, physician discretion. The primary endpoint was um, progression-free survival, and the results were impressive. The hazard ratio was 0 0.5 with a median PFS of uh, 25 months for salpercatinib compared to chemotherapy that was 11.2 months, which is still quite remarkable for chemotherapy or chemoimmunotherapy in this population. Um, salpercatinib also had uh, activity in patients with baseline brain metastasis, but also prevent the progression into the brain. So the rate of intracranial progression was very low low near to zero. The quality of life was better for patients with cell percatinib with 
compared to contour uh, arm, and the rate of side effects was more favorable to serpercatinib with a known safety profile, and now is, is the standard of care for this population if, if it was already, it wasn't already with their data of the phase one trial, but now regulatory agencies, especially in, in Europe, has um, a reason to approve this agent in the first line. Yeah, and because you have limited time, I'm just going to say, in my view, uh, the Alina study was also quite significant. So that was um, using electinib in a post-surgical um, uh, setting. Ben Solomon did a great presentation. And basically, um, using electinib post-surgery uh, was uh, uh, associated with a significant improvement in disease-free survival in patients with resectable that positive disease. The only criticism is that the the, the, the control arm was chemo, but the experimental arm did not include adjuvant chemo, and many of us still think adjuvant chemo can offer um, survival advantage even in this patient population. But the results, you know, again, hazard ratio 0.2 or something to that effect in terms of uh, disease-free survival. Uh, so I thought that was a, also a very significant study. And again, we're going to hear a lot more about it. So the design was different than Adora. Adora already got chemotherapy and then randomization to OC versus placebo. This one basically electinib versus uh, chemotherapy. I actually like the Alina trial design. I mean, hey, just lose the chemo. Yeah. Well, on Adora, you had the option of using adjuvant chemo or not. So some patients got adjuvant I and some see. didn't. But in the final analysis, it didn't seem to matter if they got the targeted therapy. So yeah. again, this has led to a lot of discussion among us thoracic oncologists. Do we need adjuvant chemo or not for patients with EGFR or ALK positive? And that's going to be debated because... I don't think we're going to have those uh, those studies anymore. Do you but, think we covered the the most important stuff? I know there's like thousands of abstracts. Yeah. Believe me, I know that. I always tell my listeners we're going to try to cover things that we really yeah. think have the most clinical impact. This is our the practice engine abstracts. Those that yeah. change the day after they, they they presented the data. So yeah. I think we are not missing any important uh, abstract. I think we cover all the very important ones. Well, my two okay. guests, the two first-timers on the Healthcare Unfiltered, Dr. Tony Callis and Dr. Haas Borgai, or V. Haas, <laughs> thank you so much for spending time really on today's podcast. We're taping this before the holidays, so I hope you have an amazing holiday season, and I can't thank you enough. These are the type of podcasts where we talk about clinical advances, where really we get a lot of listeners who are very grateful because they get to know the nuggets of these meetings and uh, apply this to their practices. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Happy holidays to everybody. Thank you very much. Happy holidays to all of you. Thanks everyone for listening. I appreciate you tuning in and being part of this podcast. Thank you for to my guests for taking time of their busy schedule and joining me to talk about the most important relevant abstracts and data that were presented at ESMO 2023 pertaining to lung cancer. Subscribe to the show, rate the show. You can watch all of these episodes on my YouTube channel, Shadi Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered, and on my website, shadinabhan.com. Before I let you go, I'm going to leave you with a saying by Alexander the Great. I am not afraid of an army of lions led by a sheep. I am afraid of an army of sheep led by a lion. Until next time, take care.